Well, with this new series, uh, we're actually doing something cool where we're using God's history, the history of God and His story of redemption, and we're going to connect it to your story and to our story of what God has, is doing now uh, through different people at our church. So uh, this is a, a great reminder of what God has done. We're going to have uh, Dan and Ronnie Correa uh, share their testimony of God's redemption, even in our failure. So let's prepare our hearts. And after that, Renee will give a great word of God's story in creation and how his redemption brings about our salvation. Let's take a look. My mom was divorced when I was really, really young. I don't even remember my dad. From age nine to 16, I was sexually abused by a family member. To kind of um, feel the pain, I got into drugs, I got into cocaine, and married my first husband, and I was physically abused by him. I was wanting to get out of that situation, and then I got a job with Foodland, and that's where I met Dan. We met over the phone at work. She worked in the office, I worked in the stores. And I remember going over to her house uh, on the ranch, and I never went back home. And Dan and I got involved. We had two children of our own, so we had two of his, two of mine, and two of ours. And in 1996, we went to uh, a seminar up in the mainland. And this man, Bill Britt, was speaking about Christianity, and he did an altar call. And I just started moving. I just started going towards the stage. Dan followed me, and I felt that this is, this is the point. This is where my life, you know, just changes. From there, when we came back, our friends um, told us about New Hope, saying, I'm on top of the world. I've got a pretty good job. Uh, my family's all involved in church. This is pretty cool. And then it happened. In 09, Facebook came about, my first boyfriend messaged me and that's where it went downhill from there. I was hiding it from Dan. My daughter found out and called me out on it in front of him and so I started to tell Dan what was going on and I know he was hurt. I just felt like I couldn't go on. So I went in the bathroom and I took a hundred Benadryl pills to try and kill myself. She comes out, and next thing I know, she's taking a whole bunch of pills. So I tell the kids, call 911, call for an ambulance. And then, I'll never forget, July 27, she tells me, I'm moving out. Well, um, this went on for about a year. I, I moved on in July. About six months later, he started, um, Michael started staying overnight. And then he would bring clothes over. And before I knew it, it was so subtle, but before I knew it, he was, he was staying with me. Dan, throughout the whole year, was sending me messages of how much he loved me. Um, songs that we enjoyed together, he would send me. Some passages from the Bible he would send me. At first, it made me feel like, okay, now you want me back, so you're doing all the right things. But eventually, it started feeling like, you know, he loves me unconditionally. I'm doing this for him, to him. I'm away from him, he wants me home. But he continues to reach out to me. I could have easily gone back and said, you know what, the hell with church, the hell with all of this. I'm just gonna go by myself and disappear. She obviously doesn't want me. The kids are all adults, they don't need me. I'm just gonna disappear. 
But I remember along the way, people telling me that's when you need to hang on to Christ the most is when you're down. And I thank God right now that I had the faith of a mustard seed. Because if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be at church right now. Prayer requests. Pray for my wife, I want to come home. And every week I would put that in, every week. I remember John telling me one Sunday, oh Dan, we got your prayer request here, we got it. I said, I understand, but I'm not gonna stop until my wife comes home. I got into a big fight with, a big argument with Michael. So much so that I told him to take his stuff and leave. And then I got to where I was trying to stand up on my own. I was laying down on my, on my bed, on my stomach, and my stomach got really, really cramped to where I knew I was gonna be throwing up. So I went in the bathroom, and I didn't know where this food was coming from, but I was throwing up my guts. And I was crying the whole time because I'm like, Lord, what is happening? I started to urinate, and I couldn't stop it from coming out, and I was throwing up. And and crying out to God, like, God, what is this? You know, is this the poison in my body? What is this? And it kept coming, and it wasn't slowing down. And all of a sudden, I said, Lord, I submit to you. I submit to you. I want to obey your word. Give me the strength to submit to you. I surrender. I surrender. And let me tell you, everything stopped at that point. And I sat there and I cried for maybe a half an hour. And I told myself it would be really nice to see Dan, but I need some support. So I decided to go to church. And I walked in and I saw he was playing. He had no idea I was coming. And I saw I walk through the side doors. And I wow, <laughs> you're good, you're good. And when they called the community prayer, he ran to me and I knew I was home. So we hugged each other and we hugged each other so very long. And it's been a work in progress. You know, I like to say that, you know, we rode off in the sunset and live happily ever after. But when she came back, that's when the work started. So we started praying every morning before work. And no matter what happened the night before, we were gonna pray before we go to work. Baptism came up on the screen. And I told Dan that night, I said, how do you feel about being baptized? And that was an amazing experience to see everybody come out and support us. Coming to community church, I was invited and and the first time we got back together is the first time I attended um, community church in Haina. And the welcoming from every single person, I felt like I never left, honestly. They greeted me as if I was there the Sunday before. I can honestly say I look forward to Sundays because sometimes I've been around so many worldly people that I crave the love and, and and the de devotion to God by everybody at church. It's like a family. It really is like a family. I feel like that's what makes our Lord happy, you know? I wanna make Him happy. Well, good morning, church family, and happy 
Super Bowl Sunday. Um, thank you so much for joining us on today of all days. I know that this is like historically sometimes some of the lowest uh, church attendance that we've ever seen. And so if you're here today, wow, you're committed and we're just uh, so thankful for you joining us. Well, today we're going to jump in with a brand new series, and I'm so excited about this series because we're going to be talking about history. You guys know that I love history, but we're going to say it a little bit differently. We're not going to just say history. We're going to say his story. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Bible and our biblical history, our Christian heritage, and why it all matters. The story of God's glory and redemption of his people and why cover to cover uh, means something. And so when we think about the Bible, when we think about our biblical history, I'm just uh, reminded of how amazing this book is. It is the word of life. I know um, the Bible, I've been kind of researching different books and publishers and everything, but the Bible is the number one best seller of all time. I think if you Google it, I think they sell like a hundred plus thousand, a hundred thousand plus Bibles every single day are being sold to this day. Um, we see that the Bible is written in three different languages. It's written from a little bit over 40 authors from all different walks of life. It's written by kings, priests, homeless prophets, a um, fisherman, a doctor, a tent maker, all different walks of life have contributed to authoring um, this Bible. We see that it's written over a span of 1,500 years, and it is written on three different continents. You have Africa, Asia, and Europe, and let's see, what else? Um, every word in it is true, and the Bible does not contradict itself. Second Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That the Bible is God's living word. One thing I love about the word of God is that it's inexhaustible, that even though you've read a story uh, before and you've read it over and over again, every time you read it, it's like something new pops up. Even in some of my devotions, I'll be reading and you know, it'll be like, read Psalm 23. So I'm like, I know that one. It's easy. I can like, I've had it memorized, but you open it and I'll have my certain verses highlighted that really speak to me. And then right under the verse that I've highlighted will be like another verse that's just like jumping out on the page and just like, how come I've never noticed? Like how many times have I read this passage and I've never noticed it except for the Holy Spirit is using God's word to just penetrate my heart that this is the living word and it is for you and it is for me today. So today we're going to jump in 
to the book of Genesis. And I don't know about you, um, but I could say, man, I probably read Genesis more than any other book in the Bible. And that's because, I mean, truthfully, you get started on these year, you know, read through the Bible year plans and you're like so committed through Genesis and okay, Exodus. And then maybe you start to get to like numbers and you kind of drop out. Um, But I love the book of Genesis and I love the story that unfolds there. So as we jump into this series, why is history so important? Why is it so important to go back to the beginning? Um, And how does God use this beginning story in our lives today? And why does it matter? And so as we do that, we're going to analyze, if we could, if you could stick with me for a moment, we'll just analyze um, the components of a really good story, because that's what the Bible is. It is an amazing story true story of God's redemption. So in any good story, the French literary structuralist A.J. Grema uh, suggests or argues that every good story has these components, and that is a sender sending an object to the receiver. And how that happens, the sender to receiver is through the subject. And the subject is the hero or the protagonist of the story. Now, if you take that, maybe this outline, um, and we, we take this great story like Lord of the Rings and we apply this. And if you can just hang with me, uh, as I go through this, but you take uh, Lord of the Rings. And if you apply this, grandma's theory is you, um, have the sender, which is like a quasi godlike figure, uh, and that will be Gandalf. Gandalf needs to get the ring. He needs someone to take the ring, which is the object, to Modor, which is the receiver, and we need to destroy that ring. That is the mission, and that is the whole basis for the book. And he, Gandalf, sends the object, the ring, through Frodo who is the subject of the book. Um, And he's the hero or the protagonist of the book. And um, he is in charge of getting the ring to Modor. Now, uh, act one ends, and it usually, in in any great story, it ends in like, oh my gosh, now we're kind of, the, the, the subject has started out on his mission and arise two different kinds of characters. You have opponents and helpers coming at the subject. The opponents will kind of block him from his mission and the helpers will do things that help him get through in his mission. And any great story will kind of end act one as like, dun, 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 like, oh no. And then act two and three actually repeat those same types of structure from, you know, the sender needing to get the object to the receiver. And a lot of times what happens in a really great story is the hero or the subject can't do it alone. So the helpers have to come and really help that subject out to get through all the different uh, opponents and enemies that arise during the story. Um, We see in chapter, or in act three of any really good story that, I mean, catastrophe happens. Like just things go from bad to worse. And at this point you're like, I don't even, I can't even, 
I can't even see like where this story is going to end or how it's going to end up. Um, but let it, it is important to know that any great story will have some form of catastrophe in it. Any great story will have conversions in it. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen a really good movie where, you know, at the beginning of a movie, you'll have this opponent to the protagonist and he's just kind of, and then by the end of the movie, the opponent becomes like an ally to a full-blown conversion and now the opponent is not just an ally but he is a helper and he's helping the subject get through to the mission and so this is a really great story where you have opponents converting um, and you have an enemy that never converts and that's a difference between an opponent and an enemy um, but any good story will have these types of elements it will have an unpredictably unexpected happier ending than you could have anticipated. Kind of like I have no clue how he's going to get to point A to point B and it, wow, uh, it'll just kind of blow your mind. Now on the flip side of that, a poor story um, would have something that's like very predictable and this is a lot of like like, sorry, ladies, there's a lot of like rom-coms out there. You're like, oh my gosh, yes, we know, we know that she's going to end up with the boy and it's all, everybody's going to live happily ever after. There's not much conflict. There's not um, much catastrophe. There's no conversion. Uh, there's no deep character development. It's just kind of very predictable. And those are not good kinds of stories. But as we jump into the book of Genesis, this is where the story begins, where our story begins, where his story begins. And we see the layout of one of the most, it is the most beautiful story in the whole world. And here it is. Um, and I think that the thing to note is that when we read something like Genesis, it is hard to make a connection. Like, what does that have to do with me today? How is that even relevant uh, with of my faith today. And so this is what we're going to do all through this series. You might already know these stories, but we hope and pray that it will strengthen your faith and your resolve. Like, oh my gosh, this is my heritage. And this is why I follow the Lord. Amen. So Genesis one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was formless and without void. Verse three, and God said, let there be light that God created something out of nothing. And I think that's such an important point to learn that out of nothing, God created. Genesis 1 26, God says, let us create man in our image. Um, and then one Genesis 1 28, uh, we see that God's mandate to man is to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. He gives man stewardship and dominion over the earth. He calls man to be a blessing to his creation. You remember when I said that God created something out of nothing? Well, I want to give you our first point for today, and that is that you are an image bearer of God, that you bear that image. Do you remember what I read earlier um, in Genesis 1, 3, that out of nothing, God said, let there be light. And there was light that out of nothing that God created. 
and that us as humans, we have this amazing ability. We bear the image of God and we have this amazing ability to create something out of nothing. Okay. And let me give you an example of how I believe that we bear the Lord's image in our everyday lives. I look at moms and how amazing and wonderful uh, moms are, even women in general, because I feel like women can get a lot done. Okay. So a mom can go into a cupboard after a child has already been in the cupboard and said, there's nothing to eat. Like we have nothing. And the mom can like pull uh, nothing and make it into something. Okay. Uh, Moms are so creative in making life work and juggling so many things. I look at a a, a man, a father, and I, I am just amazed at just, he can walk into the room and the mom's like, ah, like, you know, yelling and screaming and just like trying to get the kids to like calm down and just one word from the dad, like the whole room. It's like, oh my gosh, like you just spoke and boom, like they all obeyed your very command. Okay. I, and I feel like that is bearing the image of God. I look at our children and I look at this amazing creativity that these little beings have. Like I am amazed amazed at like, you know, cleaning the room and walking into the room at what a mess. Like there was nothing in the room. Okay. And then all of a sudden there's like everything everywhere. (laughs) Um, but it's true. Like kids are, they have this amazing creativity that is like, how did you even think to play with Play-Doh and I don't know, (laughs) toothpaste. I, um, but they, they think it in Pretty amazing if you think about it, but we're all image bearers. And so act one, you guys, Genesis chapter one, uh, we find ourselves that, uh, you know, God created everything that is paradise. It is perfect. Um, you have uh, no sin. There is like no tension. Uh, the lion is laying with the lamb. Like no animals are biting. You're not afraid of anything. Um, it is a perfect utopia, paradise. And, and, and the Bible actually says that Adam and Eve walked with God. That daily they would just like cruise around in the garden with God. Okay, so you have this perfect set. Uh, scene. And then we get to chapter three, um, where we have the fall of man. And we all know this story. We know what has happened. Um, But I would say this before I go any further, that, um, that God is the perfect father, that there was perfect conditions and his children still disobeyed. And so this morning, if you are, you know, parenting a prodigal uh, son or a prodigal child, or maybe you're just having some conflict at home, I just want to encourage you that God was perfect and children still disobey. And so there is hope for you. If there's hope for me and you, there is hope for your child. So continue to have grace and um, trust in the Lord in that process. Amen. So in Genesis three, we have the record of the fall of man. And I can preface that by saying that God said, you can have all of the, the fruit, you can have all of the trees except for the tree 
that bears the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And we see here in uh, Genesis, uh, Genesis 3.1, right away, it starts with the first account of deception where the crafty serpent comes to Eve um, and, and tells her, did God really say that if you touch the tree that you will surely die? Well, he didn't say touch. He said, do not eat. And so the craftiness of the enemy comes in and we see that Eve is deceived. Um, in in um, chapter 3, verse 6, we see that it's flat out disobedient. We see that the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took it and ate it. This is deliberate disobedience to what God had said in Genesis 2:17. This is the first time in human history where uh, humankind experiences disobedience. And we see um, in, in uh, and then she gives it to her husband. And then in, in Genesis 3, 7, we see that um, this is the first time that humankind experiences shame. It says both her and Adam have the fruit. And then it says, um, then the eyes of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves that all of a sudden for the first time in their lives, they felt the weight and the burden of shame. I wonder what that must have felt like. And then we see in Genesis 310 um, where God is looking for uh, Adam and Eve He's walking in the garden and, um, and Adam answers, God says, Adam, where were you? And, and Adam says, um, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So Adam is ashamed and he is fearful and he hides in Genesis 3.12, we see the first ever account and the first time ever we see blame, blame shifting happens. That Adam went from being afraid of God and hiding from God to straight up blaming God. Like, well, the woman, the woman that you gave me. So he's blaming the woman and he's blaming God. Um, wow. <laughs> right? Like that like that is just the, the beginning of sin creeping in, that it went from like being deceived to being disobedient to feeling shame and fear and blaming all like from bad to worse, this perfect conditions and then from bad to worse. Sin crept in. And we see because of this, there's a consequence and, and God lays that out. He says serpent. Um, so we see in Genesis three fourteen, and I'm just going to read it because you did this. See, this is the first time humanity is facing a consequence for their action that had never happened before, that there is a consequence for their sinful action. We see Genesis three, uh, 14. And so God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you and all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains child in childbearing very severe 
with painful labor and you will give birth to children. You desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you that you must not eat from. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you will eat food from it and all the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat plants of the field by the sweat of your brow and you will eat your food until you return to the ground um, sense it where you were taken for dust you were and dust you will return and Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living and the Lord made garments for this of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, man has now become like us knowing good and evil, and he will not be allowed to reach his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat it forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden to work in the ground to which he had been taken. Can you imagine what that must have felt like to be punished for the first time, to have your consequence dealt out for you and just feeling the weight of that? Like, feeling the weight of all of those things mentioned previously and then just <sighs> but I don't know if you caught that um, I think the first time I heard this it really just blew my mind but here we see act one the the end of an era where this perfect living conditions Adam and Eve have blown it there's a consequence and a price to pay and they have to now leave the garden and life will now be a lot harder. We have the sender, who is God, the uh, subject, which is the image bearers, Adam and Eve, and now the enemy is introduced, and the earth is a completely different place now. But I don't know if you caught that in verse 21, um, and that is that God for the first time we see God giving us a foreshadowing and a foretaste. God covers their shame. They covered up because they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. And God actually covers it in verse um, 21. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Meaning this, that God used animal skins, made them like, you know, fur coats. He gave them animal skins and covered them because their leaves weren't good enough. They tried to cover their own shame um, and it, it was not sufficient. And so God being the perfect being, being the one who the offense was to, they deliberately disobeyed God. And God being the one who, who had the offense, what he did was he covered Adam and Eve with, with animal skins, with fur. And so what, what that also implies is that this is the first account of blood being shed for human sin. That there is a price to pay and it costs blood. And that God, the one who was wronged, would be the one to take that action. Like, I'm going to take care of this for you. You really blew it. You really messed up. But I'm going to 
sacrifice these animals and cover you with their skin. And that's my second point today is that God this morning sees you. He sees your shame. He sees our shame and he covers us. I would argue that when you have been offended, when you have been sinned against, that you are more God-like, more Christ-like when you cover the brother or the sister who is offending with grace, when you cover them with forgiveness, when you cover their shameful acts, that you are acting more like Father God. And so if you're in that moment, grace to you, that you would continue to be one that covers. Um, since the beginning of time, we see that God, from the very beginning, God covers shame. And it's at this point in chapter three, when we get a foreshadowing of things to come that we know, we actually can read Genesis and we know the end of the story. We know here that since the beginning of time, like this is the most catastrophic thing that could have happened. And now it's going to set us like on a snowball effect for one bad thing after another, for one sin after another. Um, but we know, we know where this story goes. And that's what I'm really excited about. I think that every good story has some type of catastrophe. Every good testimony of what God is doing in your life. There's some kind of hardship. There's some kind of catastrophe. There's some kind of opponent and the enemy is working against you, but God is creating a story of redemption in your life. Just like he did with Ronnie and Dan's story that we got to watch today. And so I'm so excited to continue to jump into this series as we continue to talk about the amazing story of God's redemption for you and for me to show his glory. And so I'm going to ask Pastor John to come up and end us with communion this morning. In this time of worship, let's respond to the goodness of God and how he, we are called to be his image bearers here on earth and how he uh, covers our failure with his grace. And um, it's through a shed blood, the Bible says, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no remission of sins. Um, and today, we're, every first Sunday of the month, we remember, we recognize we memorialize what God has done for us. Over 2,000 years ago, the God of this universe took on flesh, took on skin and bones to identify with us, to identify with our weakness. And um, he lived a perfect life so that he could be a perfect, acceptable sacrifice for our sin. He died our death on the cross that we deserved but three days later, he was resurrected so that we could have new life, life eternal, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, but also a life of victory. And so we want to commemorate and remember what God has done for us through the bread and through the cup. So Jesus says that we're to do this in remembrance of him. Uh, Paul says, for I received from the Lord, which I now deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks, and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you lift up your portion, your bread, and let's pray.
Father, we remember your sacrifice. Remember your broken body, Lord, which enables us to live in wholeness and to live in fullness. We thank you, Lord God, that you are sacrificed once and for all, Hebrews 10, 14 says, and that we've been made right and we've been made perfect forever. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to crucify ourselves again and again. There's no need to flagellate. There's no need to do any of that, Lord, to go through the shame because you bore it all on the cross for us. So, Lord, as we eat this bread, I pray that you would give uh, grace, that you would give sustenance to us, your people, you, the living bread, you, the living water, that once we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we shall never thirst again. We shall never hunger again, that nothing in this world can satisfy, Lord, except a genuine relationship and a personal touch from you. So as we eat this bread, would you fill your people with your presence? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and eat of the bread. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of this whenever you eat, for whenever you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's go ahead and proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and let's drink together the cup. 